Uh, So Genesis chapter 26, again, uh, please stand as we read God's Word together. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O blessed Lord, you who has, you've, you've caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning. Grant to us that we might hear them. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the hope of everlasting life which You have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Um, No, you're not dreaming. No, we didn't back up and read the wrong chapter. No, we didn't uh, suddenly run back to... uh, It's it's something you've heard before. It should be incredibly familiar to you. Uh, Like his father before him, Isaac has to deal with a famine. And you notice Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us to make sure that we know that this isn't Abraham's famine. This is a different famine. This is not the same one that Abraham had to endure back in Genesis chapter 12. He wants us to know that, that no, you're not confused. Yes, this is going to sound 
similar. Yes, this is going to sound familiar to you, but trust me, it's not the same. It's a different account. Famines would have been common enough in that uh, climate, in that arid area of the world. Uh, a little rain or not enough rain, no rain at all. It was not at all uncommon to have to deal with uh, the, the, the effects, the consequences of uh, the lack of rain. The question becomes, though, what do you do in that moment, in that time, when, when there's a famine in the land, when you're not getting enough rain, when you can't grow crops, what do you do? Well, the logical thing then, with Egypt just a couple hours south by car, uh, the logical thing would be to go, you know, they've got this river in Egypt, it's called the Nile, and it's got this whole huge, you know, delta and river valley, and, and you can pretty much count on, on water in the Nile River. And so the logical thing to do, the thing that makes the most sense when there's a famine anywhere near there is to make the trip, make the voyage down to Egypt. That's what Abraham did uh, back in Genesis 12. Isaac, however, in verses 2 through 4, he's told not to do that. He, he packs up his stuff and he's, he goes to Gerar. He's, you get the sense he's on the way to Egypt and God uh, interrupts him and stops him and says, look, don't, uh, don't do that. Don't go to Egypt. Stay here instead. Now, listen to the words. Listen to the things that God said to Isaac in when he appeared to him there. Listen verse 3. Sojourn in this land. Stay here. And listen to what God promises. I will be with you. I will bless you. To your offspring I will give these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Those all sound familiar. Those are the exact same things that God promised to Abraham, he promises to Isaac, stay here. I give you my presence. I'm going to give you people, descendants. Now, your offspring are going to inherit this land. So you get God's presence, you have people, and a place. This, this place, this land will be yours. It's going to be yours for future generations. They're the exact same promises that Abraham heard. They're the exact same promises that God had made to Abraham. But Abraham's dead. You need to, you need to notice this. There's, there's something that's conspicuous by its absence in this chapter. Because in the last chapter, Isaac and Ishmael got together and buried Abraham. Notice the covenant didn't die with him. Isaac isn't told, now here's what you need to do. Let's start all over again, Isaac. I want you to go find some animals, grab some animals, bring them over here, cut them in half, and then we're going to start all over again with this covenant-making ceremony, this covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. There's a part of me that thinks, I would have expected to see that. You, you made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham's dead. Now you've got to start all over again. We're just reminded 
of, of what God told Abraham. This covenant extends beyond you. It extends to your children and to your children after you. To your descendants and their descendants. To your offspring and their offspring. It's, a, it's an eternal, permanent covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant doesn't, doesn't start over. It doesn't end with Abraham's death. It's not erased at that point and, and God has to start all over again. Isaac's promised all the same things that Abraham was promised. But notice verse 5. Notice the basis, the grounds on which Isaac receives these promises. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. He doesn't say, Isaac, if you will keep my commandments, then I will do these things. He's saying, I'm going to do these things. Why? Not on your merit, but on the merit of someone else. I'm going to do these things. I'm reiterating these very promises that I gave to your father, not because you're worthy, but on the the basis, the merits, the, the work of someone else. Isaac's hope is grounded in the merit of another. Is that not true for you? Is that that not your hope? I mean, you you don't come here to to church on Sunday. You don't come for worship on Sunday and think, well, at least I hope you don't, and think, well, I've got to check this box because I did some bad stuff this past week. And I've I've got to even up my ledger. I've got to balance out the good with the bad. I've got to see if I can't actually maybe get a little extra good because I'm pretty sure I'm going to do some bad stuff this week. I mean, that's that's not the the way it works at all. In fact, you notice later in the chapter, Isaac builds an altar. But he doesn't build an altar to say, hey God, I'm going to build this altar so that you will love me. He builds an altar because God loves him. This is our hope. This is our... This is our experience. This is exactly what we go through. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The merits of someone else in our place. And notice though, Isaac. we see Isaac's faith clearly portrayed for us in a very short verse. A very short verse. Sentence, verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Now, don't miss what God just asked Isaac to do. Don't, Don't gloss over that too quickly. There's a famine in the land. And, and just to the south, there's Egypt that has this major river. A place that over and over and over again. I mean, Abraham in, in Genesis 12, when there was a famine in the land, he went to, to Egypt and they weren't having a famine. We're going to see this again in years to come. Joseph's going to plan and prepare for a famine and, and people are going to flock to Egypt because, because they can provide for people. Don't go to the place where there's, um, you know, food and, and water and crops growing, 
and, and, and wealth, quite honestly, to help provide. Don't go there. Stay here in Famineville. Let's, let's stay right here where there's nothing. That, that's what God asked Isaac to do. That, that's no small thing. I mean, don't let verse 6 sort of go by too quickly. That little short sentence. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Who really thinks that's the right thing to do? Who really... Okay, I want to be careful. I, 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 I want to make sure we're not, we're, we're not being too disrespectful here. But at the same time, if we could get into Isaac's head, or for that matter, our own heads for just a second. There's food and water there. So, don't go there. There's a famine here. So, stay here. Please tell me I'm not the only one. Please give me some assurance that you too would scratch your head and go, that just might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, I'd really like to think I'm not the only one in this. That's the craziest sounding thing ever. Faith is living according to the Word of God. Trusting in the coming fulfillment of His promises rather than living by sight or by human wisdom. Or, or to say it another way, living by faith is submitting to God's Word rather than sitting as judge over it. Isaac responds in faith. He's, he's trusting God's promise to provide for him in famine land rather than going to Egypt where there's amazing wealth and food and provision. He's, he's refusing the immediate plenty and comfort of Egypt in exchange for unseen future blessings. Oh, if we lived that way. I'll exchange for the, the immediate pleasure. I'll exchange the immediate ease and comfort. I'll exchange the immediate plenty of the world around me for that which mostly remains yet unseen and, and a future blessing. That's what Isaac's doing. I'm going to trust God to provide for me and, and care for me here in famine land rather than go where there's plenty. That's faith. Isaac is, is living by faith. But notice too, perhaps some comfort to us, we also see Isaac's fear. Not only do we see his faith, but we also see his fear. Like his father before him, he married a beautiful woman. And as they are, as he's in this, this place, Gerar, he's convinced of his own danger. Verse 7. Look, Rebecca, you're, you're a beautiful woman. And, and when we get into Gerar... It's entirely possible that uh, the men there might kill me and take you for their wife. And so, 
here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that you're my sister. And see, that way, um, I, as your brother, have the, the sort of re- the responsibility and authority to approve anyone that you might marry. I can delay that. It'll buy me time. We can, we can get out of town before things get too dangerous. Notice, notice verse 7. She's, say she's my sister. He feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place kill me. His, his only care in that moment, not the promises of God that he's already sort of exercised faith in, not God's glory, his own temporary Safety. His only care and concern is, let's lie and say you're my wife because they might hurt me. And we're explicitly told, he's afraid. I have to lie. I have to lie because... Because my wife is beautiful and there's danger. I, I have to... Um, okay, I, I know... I know God's Word is to be authoritative in my life. I know I'm supposed to submit to it and, and subject to it. But the truth is, if God had really known how difficult this situation was going to be for me, He would let me have an out too. I mean, really and truly, if He had known that, that I was going into this town and, and my life would be in danger, if He had known all of that, God would gladly say, look, I, Isaac, I, I understand. I get it. I, I can see where just this once, for, for just a few minutes, just a few months, just a few years, whatever, I, I understand. It's okay. You can, you can decide to disobey my commands just this once because I see this is an, an extenuating circumstance. That's what we do, isn't it? Oh yeah, God's Word, absolutely. Faith in His care and provision, submit myself to it. Well, except in this situation, because this is... um, God didn't account for this situation. This is a special circumstance. And and this once, it's okay, it makes sense to say, well, I'm going to forgo God's commands, God's laws for just this moment. Oh, how, how often we do that. How frequently we, we put God's Word, God's promises to the, to the test. We decide that, that He needs help, and, and my help means lying about who my wife is, because I've got to protect myself uh, to ensure that this promise lasts. And it's really okay, because it's a special circumstance. We, who have faith in Christ, who say we have faith in Christ, far too often live by fear rather than by faith. Far too often we let our eyes win. 
Far too often we let our circumstances determine, you know, in this instance, in this moment, it's really okay to set aside God's law because this is a particularly difficult situation. One that perhaps God's Word didn't foresee, perhaps one that God didn't see coming. Faith and fear don't belong together. Living in fear is the exact opposite of living by faith. The fact that fear exists says that faith has has left the building, so to speak. If we're living by faith, if we're living trusting in God's commands, trusting in His promise for us, then there's no place for fear. Fear kicks in when our eyes tell us that our faith has been misplaced. That's Isaac's situation. For a moment, his eyes have said, your faith is misplaced. Yes, you trust God, you stayed in Gerar. Yes, you've shown your faith in this God who provides. But in this moment, because of this special circumstance, your faith is misplaced. Fear has kicked in. After some time, Abimelech is looking out the window and sees Isaac and Rebekah. The ESV has, has laughing. The NIV says caressing. The New King James says showing endearment. Uh, the word is actually a play on Isaac's name. So that's why the ESV chose to use laughing. But, but you know, this isn't, this isn't, oh, Isaac, you're so funny. Like, you know, some flirty little laugh. I mean, it was obviously enough to make Abimelech know, looking out the window, I don't think those two are brother and sister. That's, I don't think what they told me is true. So, so it's got to be more than Isaac told a funny joke. There's some sort of caressing, showing endearment in that setting. You know, we think getting caught, especially as children, we think getting caught is the worst thing in the world. Now, I admit it's not fun, right? I mean, kids, when, when your parents tell you to clean your room and then they ask you later, did you clean your room? And you say yes, and your room is a wreck. You've gotten caught in a lie. I know none of the kids in this room do that. You've gotten caught in a lie, and, and in that moment you're thinking, I'm dead. Like, this is the worst thing that could happen to me. You know, getting caught is actually the best thing that can happen to you. Believe it or not, not just children, grown-ups too, that getting caught, having sin discovered, having sin exposed, is actually God's grace in your life. He wants your holiness. He wants you rid of sin. He wants you being sanctified. And guess what? If if your sin is never discovered, never exposed in any way, shape, or form, then you get to keep it forever. And that's not the goal. That's not sanctification. 
It's actually God's grace to us when our sin is discovered. Isaac's lie has been found out by Abimelech. We have a problem, don't we? There are people out there in the world who refuse to have anything at all to do with the church because, they say, the church is full of hypocrites. To which we respond, yep, you're exactly right. What I say I believe and the way I live don't matter. The two don't go together. I get it. If you out there are going to judge and evaluate the whole church based on what you see in me in this moment, I say I have faith in Christ, and yet I live by fear. I say I trust Jesus, and then I live wholeheartedly committed to some pet sin. You're right. My actions don't match what I say, I believe. Our lives don't match what we believe. It's God's grace to us. When our sin would be discovered and exposed so that we can then deal with it and grow in our hatred for it and our love for Christ's righteousness all over again. But you know, it's also equally to our shame and dishonor to Christ when non-Christians are the ones used to expose our sin. Abimelech's a pagan. Abimelech's not, he's not worshiping Yahweh. He's not, he's not part of this covenant community. He's not trusting in Christ for his salvation. He's outside the kingdom, outside the church. He's the one that comes to Isaac and says, Hey Isaac, we have a higher view of marriage. We have a, think a bigger deal of adultery. We think a bigger deal of, of telling the truth than you do. When the world has higher standards than the church, we've got problems. That's Isaac's situation. A pagan ruler, a pagan king, just came to him and said, You don't think much of marriage? of adultery, or the truth. How dare you? When the world says that to the church, when the the church is called to account by pagans, by outsiders, exposing our inconsistencies, exposing our faults and our failures, our fears, exposing the fact that our Faith and our life, life don't matter, don't match. That's where Isaac is. Isaac's living this, this roller coaster of faith and fear. God gives him promises and he, he shows his faith, he stays right there in Gerar. And in the very next sentence, his fear says, Isaac, your faith might be misplaced in this particular moment. You can identify, right? 
I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but I'm also afraid. But I want you to notice, really the the bulk of the chapter we didn't read, although it comes up in verses 12 to 16. I want you to notice the fulfillment of God's promises in this chapter. We see Isaac's faith, we see his fear, but then we also see the fulfillment of God's promises. Look at verse 12. Now, um, I've mentioned our garden before, and by our garden, I mean, you know, it's wood I nailed together and dirt that the boys and I dumped into that box, and then the rest has been someone else's job. Nancy's job. So we have a garden, and by we, I mean Nancy has a garden. I would love one year. I mean, just just once, wouldn't you? I would love that everything we plant in that garden, just once, just one spring, 50-fold. Right? I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Like, wouldn't it be great to actually get a few dozen tomatoes that you can actually eat and that the birds don't steal and the, the worm and the, that the sun didn't kill and worms didn't eat. And wouldn't it be great to actually get legit cucumbers that you could actually put in an actual salad and not just have to eat whole because they're only two bites? And and actual carrots that, that I mean are actual like legit carrots that, that you could eat and it would be great to have a garden that that really actually produces like a legitimate amount of fruits and vegetables. Isaac plants a garden during a famine and reaps a hundredfold. We don't do that with all this rain. It's been raining for 24 hours. We got 75 inches of rain last night, I think. I mean, we got plenty. We're not going to get a hundredfold in our garden, I guarantee you. If we do, you're all welcome to some. In a famine, Isaac, that same year, a hundredfold. You don't get that the first year in any garden. We haven't gotten that in any garden ever. You don't get that the first year in any garden ever. But this was during a famine. In a famine, Isaac, okay, you get the gravity of this, right? You get the, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Are you, are you making the connection? You, you sure you're following the fact that that ain't supposed to happen? Okay, that, that matters. Isaac reaps far more than he should have. Isaac benefits far more than he should have. And, and notice, it's not just the, the garden that he planted. He had possessions, verse 14, of flocks and herds and servants, so much so that the people around him were jealous of him. He's gathering possessions and growing wealthier and wealthier and wealthier by the minute, so much so that, that all the Philistines are, are envious of his wealth. So Abimelech sent him away. These wells become a struggle, a sense of 
a, a, a source of conflict between the Philistines and, and Isaac and his people. He would dig a well. And the Philistines have filled in Abraham's wells and Isaac would try to dig them, uh, open them back up again. And the Philistines would claim them for their own or fill them in. They could become this, this source of conflict. But even then, he's, he's finding wells, not just wells, but springs. During a famine, remember, right? You remember that, right? It's still famine land. Wells and springs and a hundredfold in his garden in famine land. Okay, you gotta, you've got to have that. You don't have that. You don't, you're not. You're... The, the stories I hear from the Great Depression, and I'm sure there are others. I'm sure I just don't know them. Um, the, the stories I hear from the Great Depression are always stories of Families selling property and possessions that have been in the family a long time, getting rid of things. Why? Because they got to eat. I'm not related to anyone that got really wealthy during the Great Depression. I mean, like, I don't have any ancestors going, I tell you what we did. Remember that depression? You know, remember that? The thing they called the Great Depression made a mint, made a killing. That was the. I don't have those people in my family. Maybe you do. I don't have those people. That's Isaac. In a season when he should have been struggling to barely make it. He's over... He's, he's, I dig a well, there's a spring in the bottom. Yeah, there's conflict and the Philistines take it, so I just go dig another well. There's a spring in the bottom of that one too. And I've got this garden and all this wealth and all these possessions... The point that, that Moses wants to make, the point that we're supposed to get from this, there's only one explanation for all of this, and it's this. God is doing exactly what He said He would do. Did you notice? Verse 12. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold the Lord blessed him. The only possible explanation for all of this is that God is pouring out His blessings on Isaac. In fact, I want you to do something with me. Quickly, notice the tense of the verbs. Verse 3. Uh, Sojourn in this land, I will be with you. Hey, that's future tense. And will bless you. That's also future tense. To your offspring, I will give these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham. I will multiply your offspring. Okay, that, that's all future tense, right? Look at verse 24. God appears to Isaac again. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I... Oh, wait a minute. Present tense verbs. I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. I will be with you, verse 3. I am with you, verse 24. Notice what Abimelech says to him in verse 28. Abimelech shows up. He's like, uh, uh, hey Isaac, you've got a whole bunch of stuff. We noticed this. Um, and they said, Abimelech and Phicol, we see plainly that Yahweh has been with you. Now past him. God's fulfilling His promise to Isaac. Now, how did Abimelech know that God had been with Isaac? It could be 
the overwhelming possessions. It could be that. You and I aren't promised that same kind of blessing. You and I are promised different things. It's not the same kind of, of, of situation for us that if you trust in God, then you get all your health and wealth right here, right now. But it also might be the way, the meekness with which Isaac handled the conflict with the Philistines. He would dig a well. They would come along and say, Isaac, go away. This is our well. We're claiming it. He would turn the other cheek and find a new place, dig a new well. And when they didn't take that one, he said, okay, here, I've got a well now. Abimelech's watching his character. He's watching Isaac's character to see that he's, he, he doesn't react in anger. He doesn't react in war. He reacts meekly and humbly. And he sees God's blessing in Isaac's life. God promised to be with Isaac. And by the end of the chapter, we've already gotten evidence from pagans that God has already been with him. And when did this come? Right after he lied. Didn't think much of marriage or the dangers of adultery. Immediately on the heels of his fear, affecting his life. We see faith in verses 1 through 6. We see fear verses 7 to 11. And it's on the heels of that. Lying. Not really caring if Abimelech or any of his people commit adultery. Not really thinking much of his own marriage. It's right after his sin that God pours out his blessing on him. What does that tell you? It doesn't tell you, sweet, I can do what I want. And nothing matters. It also doesn't tell you, I just got to try harder, grab my brute straps, pull real hard, and I'm going to get to God yet. It tells you that salvation is all of grace. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. The first... Just out of curiosity, I, I won't ask children, please don't react. Please don't, please don't give away. But I wonder how many parents have ever said to their kids, all right, look, when you get in a difficult situation, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lie. I, I don't know any parents teaching their children ever to tell a lie. I'm pretty sure Abraham never grabbed Isaac and sat him down one day. All right, son, it's time for the talk. You know, you're going to marry a beautiful woman, and, and there's going to come a time when your life's going to be in danger, so what you're going to do is, is lie. Just lie through your teeth. Tell them she's your sister. Trust me, it's foolproof. There's something to familial sins. There's something to be said for seeing your own sins and struggles and fears showing up in your children. Or looking at your parents and going, huh, all those things I didn't like about you, I do it too. I'm just like them. There's something to be said for familial sins. We see like father, like son. Isaac, just as his father did, he didn't have to be taught lie. He watched it. And he just absorbed it. 
maybe instead of like father, like son, it's lie father, lie son. Take the K out and it works just fine. A second application. Um, some of you, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, one of these days I'm going to get my life cleaned up enough to come to Jesus. Okay, I know I should go to church. I know I should believe in God. I know I should trust in Christ. One of these days I'm going to get my life cleaned up enough in order to do that. You know, one day when, when I get things together and, and, and my life is in order, then I'll kind of think about Jesus and, and go into church. This passage says that's not possible. God's presence in your life, God's promises to you aren't based on your obedience, but on the obedience of someone else, on the works and merits of someone else. They're grounded in the work, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. God says to us, just as He said to Isaac, because of someone else, I promise to be with you and never to forsake you. Salvation is all of grace and not at all by your own works. If you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, don't say, I'm going to clean myself up, one day I'll come to Him. Instead, you run to Him now. Let Him be at work cleaning you up. A third application. Yes, salvation is all of grace. Yes, it's all grounded in the merits of Christ. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone is not excuse, it's not license to sin. We're called, we're commanded to be holy as our Father in heaven, as God Himself is holy. The real source of our hope and of our joy and and enjoyment and pleasure in God is to trust and obey. Our Heavenly Father uses the sacraments, the word sacraments, prayer, the means of grace to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For Christ, it was His food to do His Father's will if only we could say the same. It's my great joy and pleasure and delight to live according to God's commands. We're called to holiness, not to become saved, but because we have been saved. He's making us holy. Yes, we wrestle with weak faith. Yes, we wrestle with fear. Yes, we struggle with doubt. Yes, we say we believe and in the next moment we live out of fear. Yes, that is absolutely true of us. Is the church full of hypocrites? This one has at least one. This one has at least one who says, I believe this, but I live a completely different way far too frequently. My hope is not in my own merits, but in Christ. No, our lives, what we, what we say we believe doesn't always match the way we live. But He's at work. Making those two things closer and closer and one day, when He does come and shout of acclamation, we will put fear aside because we have His presence fully and finally and completely. But we're also going to put faith aside because that for which we longed for will then be reality.
That's our hope and our comfort. Oh, that God would give us the grace to live our faith, for our lives to match what we say we believe and follow Him despite the trials and difficulties in this life. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we admit our weakness. We admit our fear, our struggles, our doubts. We pray that You would root those out in our lives. That You would root out sin. That You would grow in us. Use Your means of grace, the Word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship with other believers, to encourage us in our walk with Christ. To grow in our love for Him and our hatred for our sin and our submission and obedience to Your will. And we pray all of this in the name and for the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.